I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers. It's good to have you listening. The writing life that David Troyer dreamt for himself at 19 has happened, albeit with some unexpected plot lines. His book, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Carnegie Medal. His stories appear in respected magazines, and he is today at a writer's residency in Europe. And perhaps this is when you know you've really made it. His first novel is being republished. He writes in the introduction, I was terribly young when I began it and young when I finished it, and the book reflects my youth such as it was. So what does David Troyer know now that he didn't know then? I know that could take hours, but that's the essence of our conversation today. David Troyer's first novel, now republished by Grey Wolf Press, is titled Little, and he joins us from Germany. It's a pleasure. It's good to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for, for having me even across the ocean. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I wondered if you were eager to revisit this novel when Grey Wolf said they wanted to bring it out again, or was there, or was there something in you that kind of shied away from revisiting the past and needing to go back in and reread the novel? No, nothing made me shy away from the past. I was very excited and, uh, and flattered and grateful that Grey Wolf wanted to bring the book forth again um, after all these years. So it's, it, it is strange, though, to, to go back and read it. And um, I don't usually reread my own work. And so <laughs> uh-huh. it was strange. It was a strange sensation, but it was, it, was a, it was a fun one, ultimately. What's strange about it? Well, you know, it's, you're revisiting a part of your life or something you've done that occup- occupied you completely for for years you know it was your life for a long period of time at least for me I, I take a long time between books and on books and so and then you 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 move on you you start writing other things you start thinking other thoughts you get excited about different projects you become obsessed with different things and so it fades you forget about it and so you go back and you suddenly are walking around in, the, I suppose, the, the swamp of your own <laughs> earlier life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I had a, I had a note here, and I, I want you to correct this if it, if it isn't true. Was this, I mean, you were 19, as you've said, when you started it. Was this a time when your ambition exceeded your skill? And, of course, as you've aged and you've written, maybe it... Maybe it has flipped. I just analyze that phrase for me and tell me kind of where you think you were at nineteen, and then how that <laughs> relates to where you are now. I'm laughing because, um, you know, my ambition outstripped my abilities when I was nineteen, and my ambition still outstrips my abilities at fifty, <laughs> fifty-one. Um, that has never changed. Um, <laughs> which of course makes me always slightly miserable <laughs> with myself um but but i was definitely um over my head and i remember um when i first started the novel and i was a uh, sophomore maybe in mm. college at princeton and i was taking right? at princeton yeah and i was taking a creative writing workshop my first and i was also taking a course on european short fiction and I remember in my literature course, we read Gustave Flaubert's A Simple Heart. We read um, Thomas Mann's Tonio Kroger. We read James Joyce's The Dead. And I was blown away by these examples of literary art. I was, I was stunned by these things. And I, I, I burst into my creative writing workshop and, and probably late, you know, because that was me <laughs> then. And... And interrupted the conversation and asked my professor, I'm like, how, how do we do that? And he said, mm-hmm. do what? And I said, well, you know, and I told him about what I've been reading. Like, how do we, how do we do that? You know, and I didn't have any more words. I didn't know how to express the kind of anxiety I was feeling. And he said, well, look, 
it's not probably a good idea if we compare ourselves to Flaubert and Mann and Joyce. Um, they're masters and, and we're not. And I remember feeling so disappointed and I looked at him in disbelief and I said, but if we're not comparing ourselves to them, then, then why are we even here? And I didn't articulate it very well, but what I wanted to ask him was not how do I become Flaubert or Mann mm -hmm. or Joyce, but how do I make something that's that profound, that, that moves somebody the way I'd been moved so completely? Um, like, how do I, how do I do something new, I guess? And he didn't have any answers for me. Of course, there's no answer. How do you do that? It's, you know, <laughs> how, how do you, how do you <laughs> cast a spell, right? How do you do real magic? Like, there's no answer for these things. So, you know, I, I hear that and I think that in some ways you were asking, can this be the making of of a master? The, the kind of, not the, the James Joyce, you know, mastery, but mm -hmm. do I have potential? Can we learn some of the things that can be taught about the making of that kind of mastery? What do you think yeah. the answer is today? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, you have to, I mean, for me as a writer, I have to, right? This is the only way I know how to, to work, um, is to trust the places my, intu my intuition comes from mm -hmm. on one hand. And on the other, I have to work my words, you know? So it takes this, this combination of, I don't know, ability that maybe can't be taught and and it takes a lot of dedication to craft to art you have to read you have to write you have to rewrite you have to you have to work it takes both things one or the other will get you only so far i think um you need both you know i wondered david if in going back to read little again, as the, as the republishing was in the works, whether you saw um, and, and sensed just this kind of overflowing sense of things that you wanted to say that had maybe been building for who knows how long, right? For through your young adulthood and into up into your you know, late teens. I mean, can you feel that sense of urgency in those words? And then I also am curious about whether what has, whether that sense of urgency has changed. You still have so many things to say, but whether you have this sense that it has changed from the beginning. Um, the second part of the question is easier. I mean, what I want to do in a given book changes with, with each book. I have new goals or new uh, obsessions. Um, and I think, I think this first novel little of, you know, this, this little book of mine, my first one, mm -hmm. um, comes pretty close to fully exploring the things with which I was obsessed at the time. And, you know, my obsession then was, was how do you, how do you communicate the uncommunicable in a way, mm. you know? And can I tell you a story about the, the first inspiration, which I totally forgot about until I reread, yes. uh, reread the novel? Yeah. So the real heart of the book was a short story I wrote, which ended up not appearing in the book whatsoever. And the characters didn't appear either. But in this short story, there's the action of the story was this grandfather who's somewhat estranged from his son wants to take his grandson fishing. The son doesn't want to let his dad take the boy, but grudgingly allows him to do so. And so this old man takes this young boy fishing in a little skiff on a northern Minnesota lake. And the young boy falls overboard. 
and his grandfather is too old, he's too feeble to do anything about it and is unable to get the boy back in the boat and the boy drowns. And the whole story takes place on the phone where the grandfather is telling his son about what happened. And the problem, of course, is that this old man can't bear to admit Mm. that he failed to protect his grandson. He can't admit it. He can't admit it to his son, the father of the child. He can't admit it to himself. He can't say the words, he's dead, it's my fault, or or anything like, like that. But he tries, and he ends up telling his son this fish story about how they hooked a great big fish the biggest he's ever hooked and they were trying to fight it and they got it close to the boat and they couldn't get it in. They couldn't get it in the boat um, and it got away. And that's sort of as close as this old man can get to naming his mistake and naming his grief. And so it wasn't good because it's impossible. Um, It's really impossible and I didn't have the skills to, to pull it off at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but that was the heart of this thing. And so my, that sort of obsession of like, how do we say the things or communicate the things we cannot say? Um, that was something I was deeply curious about. And, um, and sort of thematically curious about sort of when I thought about my life and the lives of sort of the native people I grew up around um, at Leech Lake and my family. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of at the heart of things. And, you know, it dropped out of the novel. The novel took on its own life and evolved from there. But, and I'd forgotten completely about it until I went back to reread the novel. Yeah. You know, I, I was going to say that, that does not appear unless. No unless it's so subtle that I missed it, in no, the novel. No, not at all. What, so I'm interested in what opened from that short story. How did that open to the kind of novel that you wrote? I don't remember. Um, but I do remember that the next short story I wrote was a similar kind of confession, in a way. Hmm. Um this boy who's sort of nominally in charge of his younger brother, this enigmatic younger brother who's got some birth defects, who can speak, they think, but chooses not to for the most part. But this older boy, Donovan, is sort of in charge of his brother, his protector. Mm -hmm. And they climb this water tower outside of the little village they live in in the middle of the night. The the younger brother decides he's going to do this, and the older brother follows him. He can't really get the kid to stop, but so it goes up with him. And then the young boy dies up there. And the brother has to sort of talk about this thing he can't talk about, in a way. And that was a sort of imagined by me as a standalone short story. And that ended up being the climactic chapter of the novel. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of all the other parts sort of grew, grew out of it in some way or another. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show that I do where readers meet writers. I'm in conversation with David Troyer. He is the author of a number of novels and nonfiction books, including The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. It won the Berlin Prize, and David is today at a writer's residency in Germany. But we are talking about his first novel, now republished by Grey Wolf Press, titled Little. And and you can hear our conversation. I'm asking about how much he remembers of being 19, and beginning that novel, as he says, he was young when he started it and still young when he finished it. But the experiences about putting 
that language and those ideas on paper and what he knows now that he didn't know then, <laughs> I assume a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about um, confession because as you're, as you're describing that, I'm thinking often when we're children, we don't have the language or the words to talk about something that, um, you know, is deeply meaningful or frightening or, you know, deeply emotional. I, I think we find the language as we get older, but I don't know that it's any easier. I, I mean, the grandfather, the young boy, uh, you know, I'd love you for you to reflect on what happens as we age to this idea that there, it is still so impossibly difficult to tell something that you've held deeply that you know is going to be wounding, that is going to be, you know, transformational in a tragic or, or in a good way. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, that's one of the vexing things, right? Our sort of self inventories and then, (laughs) you know, truly honest ones. And especially the ones that we are feel compelled to share with others are, are incredibly tricky things, you know. And for the characters in this novel too, um, they simply can't do it. They most of them will talk about anything other <laughs> than themselves, right? And then that's the way we end up sort of carrying each other and each other's truths and stories, I guess. It's sort of how, it's sort of the logic of the book. You know, Jeanette can't really talk about herself very well, so she talks about Duke and Ellis, and Lyle can't talk about himself, so he talks about Violet. And Stan can't really talk about or come to any understanding of himself, so he talks about his 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 brother. You know, so, and on it goes. And so, you you know, you you're left with this chorus of voices, each one sort of ticking up and speaking for a different member of the chorus, if you will. This sort of mm-hmm. vast ventri- ventriloquism, maybe. <laughs> you know? And maybe that's how we do it, too. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Do, do you think you're still working that out? <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. No. I'm 51 now. I mean, you know, there's a lot more looking back. And there's a lot more sort of, you know... Um, you know, I went out to dinner with my daughter last night. Um, two of my three kids came to Germany with me and they're going to school mm, and, lovely. um, I know it's great. And, you know, so we had this father daughter moment and we're just talking over dinner and, you know, I'm kind of telling stories about my life and she's telling stories about hers, which I hadn't heard before. And she's going to be 17 soon, you know, and I've been in her life for those 17 years. And there are these, you know, these great moments and also interior landscapes of hers that I can't possibly know um, that are just going to normally and naturally be hidden from me um, because she's a discreet human being, you know, with a life connected to but very separate from my own and so it was it was interesting i'm just thinking about it as we're talking and chatting over bread and food um you know just how actually hard it is right to sort of to to tell one's own story um to have it heard you know even by the most sympathetic of listeners and and she is very much that you know, so yeah, it's it's you know these things bedevil us. They don't stop. You know, I I wonder if your daughter, as as uh, young people that age are aware. I remember being aware of this, of giving my parents a glimpse of the interior landscape, and then gauging their if they were too eager. I kind of closed the door again. Just, <laughs> just the. <laughs> The sensibility of listening turned out to be very important to that. And I wonder if your 
aware of that, of whether she's kind of gauging how voracious your curiosity is about her interior landscape and how you modulate that, maybe? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think we all want to be read, maybe, you know, to use a literary metaphor, but we don't <laughs> always want to be read um, in someone else's terms. We want to be read yeah. on our own, you know, so, so too much curiosity and too much passion for, you know, for that, I think, you know, can make all of us shy. Um, but, you know, and this is, uh, you know, this is just a parenting thing, right? I mean, I don't know if it's a literary thing, but <laughs> when she was just edging toward being a teenager, you know, we're out for a walk, she kind of came out to me and I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Here's something to consider. I told her, she's like, what's mm -hmm. that? And I said, well, you know how I have a private life. It's none of your business. You don't get to know everything that's going on inside of me. She's like, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you have one too. And so I'm going to respect that. I'm not going to ask you questions about things, you, you know, whether you're dating or who you're dating or who you're interested in, all those kinds of things, because those are yours. That's private for you. So me not asking you lots of questions all the time is not my lack of curiosity. It's just my respect for you and your autonomy and your private life. So wow. I'm not going to bug you, but it's not because I'm not curious. I said, I want to know everything about you. Like I'm, <laughs> you know, I am really into you as a human being and like super curious about everything. I'm like, but it's not my right to ask. Wow. Your, your restraint is very admirable. <laughs> and she's like, she just kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Really? It seemed to me. And she's mm. like, thank you. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. I'm like, you're welcome, kid, you know. <laughs> um, you tell a story in the introduction that I, I really, I, I would feel like I was um, committing journalistic malpractice if I did not ask you to talk about it. You're in a long fiction workshop. Is, is this, again, freshman year or sophomore year at Princeton? This would have been the start of my junior year. Your junior year, Okay. Yeah. This is a workshop that Toni Morrison is teaching, and she asks the class to talk about what you're all working on. Pick up the story, if you will. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm amazed that I've gone anywhere in life because I was <laughs> such, a f such a fool, you know, and still am for so much of it, but... So I, I was in this workshop. There were only six or seven of us in there. And on my way to that class, you know, this is, I don't know, 1990. She's won the Pulitzer Prize a couple of years before. It'll be three years until she wins the Nobel, you know. And I'm walking to class, and I'm, I've got two voices in my head. One is in utter shock and I'm I'm deeply disturbed and nervous. I'm like, oh my God, it's Toni Morrison, it's Toni Morrison. I'm going to take a class with Toni Morrison. I'm like, oh my God, this is frightening. You know? And the other voice in my head is she's just a human being. She's written some things, you know? <laughs> and she's got some ideas. They're she's just her ideas. Some things. <laughs> you know, she's written that's all. She's just a person who's written some stuff, you know. And then Oh my God, it's Toni Morrison. And then, eh, just a person. It's, oh my God. You know, like, and I was like that all the way to class. And I finally got there and I sat down and I was so, um, you know, and this says maybe more about my childhood or the childhood of Native people. I don't know. But, you know, I was, I was so insecure um, and so frightened generally that my only way of feeling safe was to attack Hmm. And uh, so we sit down and she said, I want everyone to go around and talk about what they're writing. And so the class, all of them, I'm sure as scared as I was and as eager as I was as well, go around and they're talking about their projects. And, and it gets to this kid on my right named John. And he starts speaking and I start getting upset because he starts speaking and in a very sort of a voice that I thought of as very Princeton, 
and with, you know, and he'd kind of toss his head back and his hair would flop in a way that I thought of as very <laughs> Princeton hair kind of way. <laughs> and he says, you know, my name is John and I'm writing a novel that takes place on Martha's Vineyard. And the main character is a half-breed whose mother is the town drunk. And I'm like, the half-breed Indian, by the way. And the more he speaks, the more upset I'm getting. And it was my turn next. And so I just, I just went off script, you know. And I said, yeah, maybe I'll talk about why I write rather than what I'm writing. And I write because idiots like this, and I pointed at him, <laughs> don't know what the hell they're talking about. They've seen Dances with Wolves, and they think they know something. They've read Last of the Mohicans, and they think they know something, but they don't. They don't know shit, is what I said. <laughs> and, you know, very aggressive and honestly, like, really cruel to this kid who, in, a test, in testament to how mature and kind he was, you like, became friends with me later. Really? Absolutely. Oh, wow. He was a he was a genuinely kind and engaged and interesting person. And that, you know, that says a lot about him. That after that, he'd want to be friends. And um and Morrison is just kind of laughing quietly. <laughs> and then she's looking at some paper in a folder on her lap and she said, "Well, says here you're an anthropologist, you're an anthropology major." And I was still in, a t in attack mode. So I said, yeah, so what of it? <laughs> to Tony Morrison. Okay. <laughs> to Tony Morrison, right? <laughs> yeah. When in doubt, attack, right? And, um, and she says, well, you write better than most anthropologists. Hmm. And then I kind of woke up into the, the, the danger I was in, you know? Mm -hmm. And I kind of realized where I was and who I was talking to and how I was talking. And, and so I, I just kind of sat up in my seat and I said, oh, um, is that supposed to be a compliment? And then she says, yes, actually, it is. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I just retreated, you know. But I think I can't speak for her, you know, but... I was a saucy kid, and I think she liked that. I like to think that she was tired of people being afraid of her and hanging mm -hmm. on every word, and who mm -hmm. maybe weren't afraid, even though the truth is that I was terrified. Um, and then that's why I spoke the way I did, but weren't afraid to give and get, you know? I think it's interesting that you described that, that as the danger that you were in. Danger of being just dismissed as yeah. some loudmouth who Yeah. you know, who had some talent, but why should I th this kid is, you know, clearly not th thoughtful enough to what 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 was the danger? That I had an incredible opportunity in front of me. Mm -hmm. and that I would blow it. You know, that was the danger. And that danger was real, because, I mean, that was, that, was on, that was on the table, you know? I mean, she could have been like, I don't even want to deal with this kid. Right, yeah. You know, and then that would have been that. So, you know, I, I was very lucky, um, both in having the opportunity to just walk into that room. And I was lucky that she didn't ask me to walk out after my attack on my classmate mm -hmm. and, and further lucky that she took a shine to me, I guess, you know, I don't get to say how other people feel right. Unless they've told me how they feel. I never asked her how she felt about me. Um, cause that would be strange. Right. Um, I like to think that she was fond of me, you know, I like to think that she, you know, saw something in me and she did actually say something to that effect. So I, I don't know how she felt, but I do know what she thought. <laughs> so, you know. what, what did she say to you? Oh, 
she was a wonderful teacher, honestly. Um, a complete teacher. Hmm. You know, she took my work seriously. She pushed me hard. She asked me to take myself and my own work seriously. Um, she asked a lot of me and she expected a lot. And, you know, so I, she demanded that we have weekly meetings and, um, I'd show up. And at one meeting, I remember she said, she just had read my, um, a draft of something. And she said, is it true what you read about? jack pine trees and i said is what true she's like well is it true that they can't reseed themselves unless there's been a fire i'm like yeah that's that's just common knowledge (laughs) in in minnesota (laughs) everyone knows that right (laughs) you know she's like oh that's too good not to use that's too good i don't remember in what context i think i was having a crisis of some sort and she goes okay Here's the deal. And I'm only going to say this once. So listen. I was like, okay, God, all right. just hear that too. I said, okay. And she says, you are incredibly gifted. Wow. This is what you're meant to do. You're going to go far. It's not going to be easy. But this this is what you're supposed to do. And you can do it. And I'm never going to say that again because it'll go to your head. <laughs> she never you know, said it again. That, that sounds both <laughs> exhilarating and kind of terrifying. Now it's there. Now it's on. <laughs> I right? guess. Um, <laughs> I can't say if she was right about a lot of that, but she was right about the fact that it wasn't going to be easy. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, you know, you're trying to do a thing which is, which, really hasn't been done. And she said, I said, well, what, what's that in your opinion? She's like, well, you're trying to create fully realized native characters in a native world without recourse to all of the sort of cheap shortcuts that people have been using to get there. You know, you're not, Mm -hmm. you're not, you're doing something much harder. And it's never been done. Like your characters aren't connected to nature in any kind of easy way. There's not some sort of baked in spirituality. There's not, you know, there's all this stuff that usually happens in native American fiction and, and you're not doing it. You're doing something else and it's much more difficult. Um, so people aren't going to get it, you know? And, uh, and she was, she wasn't wrong about that. You know, I remember even in one of those early workshops, a really smart classmate of mine, who's a great writer um, in his own right, read the chapter with Donovan and Little on the Water Tower, mm-hmm. which was then a short story. And he said, okay, wait, how are they native? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, they're not doing native things. <laughs> you know, like, maybe they could say something. He offers them suggestions, right? Like, maybe they could talk about it. I'm like... I was like, no, they can't talk about it. That's not their frame of reference. Like, you know, this 13-year-old boy and his younger brother, you know, don't make their sense of themselves with, like, you know, as a Native American boy, you know, you know, I climbed the water tower. Or as a Native, they don't see themselves from the outside as Native. They just see themselves as boys, you know? And uh, they don't see themselves, there's no self-regard, really, there for them. Um, Donovan's point of reference is the myth of Antaeus, which he read in his literature class in, you know, middle school or his freshman year in high school, my character. Greek myth, that's, that's his, that's his referent, you know, in that particular chapter. And, um, because that's what's swimming into his view in his daily life, not his nativeness. So anyway, she wasn't wrong, you know, that it was, the the novel didn't perform the kind of cultural work that people wanted native novels to perform. Um, do you think yeah. they still do? 
No, I think it's changing. I think, you know, I mean, we're training and have been training a, a generation of Native writers, and there are so many now mm-hmm. of different experiences and different inclinations and different obsessions and different abilities, you know. Um, but we've also been training readers, mm-hmm. you know, That's to right. expect different things, you know, to let go of their expectations that they're going to see some sort of, that our, that our novels are supposed to sort of perform the function of peeling back the buckskin curtain, <laughs> you know. We've been training readers, too, to expect different things from our books. Um, right. And... Both of these processes are slow, but we're in a very different place as a readership in 2022 as we were in 1992 when I was working on this novel. And I think that's happening in a lot of different experiences of, of uh, fiction. Absolutely. I, I feel like such a, such a more aware and I don't know, tuned in reader than, you know, some of, uh, probably than my mother was. She was a huge reader, but I'm sure that I read differently than she did. Absolutely. I would hope so. You know, and like, I mean, talking about Toni Morrison just for a moment, you know, it's, it cheapens beloved, arguably her masterpiece to read it as, as sort of a, a window into, you know, quote unquote, African-American experience. You know, it's a book about love and a mother's love and the impossibility of loving in a way that's healthy if you didn't own yourself, like Setha didn't own herself. Mm. Mm-hmm. And thus, don't even own your children. Loving in that context, a mother's love for her children is going to be warped. It's going to be skewed. It's going to be complicated. You know, it's a classic and sort of exploration of of love. And as sort of pinned through and sort of explored in the context of the institution of slavery. You know. So, One Cheapens Beloved is reading it for sort of, it's multicultural magic, mm-hmm. you know, it's a bigger book than that, you know, but we, you know, I think we all do read differently. I think of my dad a lot, you know, bless his heart. Um, my father was the kind of reader who couldn't, if something moved him, then the writer must have experienced exactly the things that happened in the book. <laughs> Is that true? You know? Absolutely your dad, true. Your dad That's thought, he, I mean, you're saying even in fiction, your dad thought. Oh, yeah. Even in fiction. Oh. Huh. So, you know, in Dubious Battle, you know, his favorite Steinbeck novel, um, mm-hmm. that had to have happened to Steinbeck somehow, you know? And he stopped me... Um, I was going upstairs, I remember, in his house, the house I grew up in. And he stopped me when I was halfway up. He's like, David, I have a question. He just finished reading one of my novels. I don't remember which one. Um, it might have been The Hiawatha. Or maybe not. I don't remember. And he said, I just, I just have to ask. It's been on my mind. Or, I, I just have to say. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I didn't know that you were abused like that. And I, I can't remember the passage... But one of the characters was, no, I think it was Prudence, actually. Um, was terribly abused in that book. And I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I mean, why didn't you tell me? I said, what? No, Dad, no. You know? I mean, I, I was sexually abused, as you know, you know? But not in ways that you don't know. You know? Mm-hmm. Like the stuff that happened to this character did not happen to me. And he's like, well, how could you write it? And I said, dad, I just made it up. <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you, <laughs> you know? So for my father, it was a very 
direct and concrete and measurable in his mind, one for one. If this happened in a novel, this happened to the writer, had to have. And I'm like, dang, man, you know? I mean, in some way, I, I, th I think, I still think there are a lot of people who read like that. And maybe that's also part of the kind of education that readers are getting. Because those kinds of questions come up a lot when I'm in yeah, they do. forums. They do. And I always, yeah, see, you probably get them too. And I, I always kind of wince because um, it doesn't mean that if it isn't autobiographical, it isn't powerful. Right? Yeah. And moving. But I don't think that's uncommon. Yeah, probably not. I mean, probably not. You know, but for me, like, you know, the, the prospect of, of creating a character or, or creating a whole novel, you know, is, is a massive kind of what if, or in the sense of like my character, Donovan and little, like what would it feel like mm -hmm. to lose your brother and to feel like it's your fault? To feel like it's there's, you lost your brother because of some omission or crime of your own, you know? Or Jeanette in the same novel, you know? What would it feel like to essentially be sold? Which did actually, in a sense, happen to one of my relatives who was sort of bought wow. by two women who lived in Minneapolis. And wanted Bought to raise a child. Yeah. I see. They paid, they paid, I can't remember which relative, but they, they paid the family. Or maybe I just don't want to, I don't want to sort of name the relative, you know, yeah. but um, for, it's not my story to tell, but like, um, you know, so like to be separated from her, her family or, what le was left of it and from her place and her language and raised in Jeanette's case in Iowa um, until she was rescued by two other characters in the book. Um, you know, as my mother was rescued, um, she was put into foster care in Southern Minnesota by my grandmother. And she t was very happy. They were great foster parents. They were really lovely people. They were, took good care of her. They were very loving. Um, nonetheless, my mom's uncle rolled up in the yard in a big black car with cigarettes rolled, rolled up in the sleeve of his t-shirt, just like James Dean. And he was a very <laughs> handsome man. Um, he was, yeah, Diddy. It was super cool. And uh, he's like, Peggy Ann, get in. She's like, okay. She just got in the car and he drove her back home. You know, so like, what would it feel like to be her? Yeah. To be rescued. That is like something know? out of a novel. It yeah, well, I put it in a novel, novel in a different way. <laughs> I you know, know you did. And, uh, <laughs> right. um, I don't know what that's like, but I, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon me, right? That's sort of our, that's sort of our civic duty, I think, is, as writers is to, is to at least to try and imagine the experiences of others, not to just relay our own in code, you know. Right. I'm Carrie Miller. Uh, I'm in conversation today with David Troyer, and we're talking about his first novel, begun when he was 19, published. How old were you, David, when it was actually published? In your mid 20s? Yeah, I. Um, it was published in the fall of 1995, and I. Okay. It was published a few weeks before my 25th birthday. So I say I was published when I was 24. Okay. <laughs> that was my goal. That was my, I was like, I made it, you know, a, a terrible goal, honestly. Why? I should have given it more time. I should have yeah. spent more time on it. I should have not been in such a rush, you know. Uh, the novel is titled Little and Grey Wolf is now republishing. Uh, and we're, we're talking about kind of where he was and when the book came out and where he is now and how his ideas about 
language and writing and telling truths um, have sustained or changed. Uh, I have so many questions built up here, and we don't have enough time here. <laughs> First hard. of all, I, I'm really curious about what happened to the lunk who was writing the novel on Martha's Vineyard, who surprisingly became a friend of yours. Did he become he did. a writer? Um, I don't think he became the kind of writer that he, he wanted to be. Um, but I, I do think, and we never became super close and we're not in touch now. Um, but we were, we were close-ish and, um, I kind of kept track of him for a while and he was writing and he was publishing. Um, oh. but I, I don't know if he ever published a book. Um, I don't know how that worked out. You write in the introduction. I have a much less complicated relationship with language and with beauty now. You know, okay, that surprises me because I really thought as you grew more into yourself and became more you that 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 relationship was going to become more complicated. What does it mean? Hmm. Um, I mean, I... A number, I think I mean a number of things. One thing I think I mean is that um, that I was obsessed with stylistic concerns. You know, if it wasn't pretty, it wasn't good. And so I brought a lot of literary magic, at least that's what I thought it was, to bear on my, especially my early work, not just little. And... I, and I think my insistence on style and my preoccupation and obsession with it was, was also a kind of insecurity because I could do language well, mm. you know, um, I could do pretty well. I could use language in ways that was maybe not intuitive for other people. Um, and so it felt fresh and felt interesting and new and so on. That's one small gift I might've had, um, which to be honest, and this will bring us too far afield, might have something to do with the traumatic brain injury I had as a child. I had my skull fractured. Um, who knows? But, um, but I made things overly complicated. And I was in love with overly complicated, very style-forward novels. But as I've gotten older, you know, I, I think my language has become a little more natural, a little more direct, um, a little more effective, you know? And my tastes have become thus too, like, you know, when I was 20, I'm like, give me Georges Perec or give me death. He's the guy that wrote Life, a User's Manual, you know, very artsy. And yeah, I have now, oh, huh. uh, I don't know that you need to. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> Yeah, for releasing and, uh, me from that. And now. Oh, please, yeah. But now like, I'm like. Give me John Irving. Mm-hmm. You know, give me, you know, later Louise Erdrich. Give me, you know, just these, give me these stories that move me someplace new, you know. And I've found that writing those kinds of stories are, for me, much harder than doing this sort of artful complicated things I was trying to do in my first few. <laughs> you teach creative writing. You're still doing this at the University of Southern California? Absolutely. Okay. Keeps so, me honest. It, it, given, I had a note about this, and then I heard you say a few minutes ago that you wished you'd waited to publish this first novel, that you hadn't been so impatient. And I'm curious about what you tell your students or what you convey to them about ambition and impatience and the acquisition of, of, you know, wisdom with, with age and experience. Do you share some of that with them? I don't think that I do um, that often, hmm. you know, um, you know, for contrast or comparison, you know, I don't remember if she said this to me or if she said it to the class, but Professor Morrison, and I still call her Professor Morrison to this day, um, said something like, 
I think she said it just to me. She's like, look, my job is not to launch you. I'm not going to help you find an agent. I'm not going to help you find a publisher. My job is to teach you. My job is to help you become a complete writer by way of helping you with your manuscript and teaching you. That's my job. Those other jobs are not my job. And I, I was offended. I'm like, I would never ask. And I never did. You know? Grey Wolf didn't even know that I'd worked with her until they'd already accepted the book and we'd pre- prepped it for publication. Really? Oh. Yeah. And um, um, Fiona and Jana, the, the, the people I was working with most closely at the time, you know, they're like, so th- who do you think we can talk to for a blurb? I said, well... Um, we could ask Louise Erdrich, like, you know, our families know each other. And they're like, that's great. I'm like, we could also ask Toni Morrison, maybe. <laughs> and Jana's like, wait, but I mean, do you know her? I said, yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she, we worked on this together for the past year and a half. I mean, for, for a year and a half. And she said, when were you going to tell us this? <laughs> I said, now, I guess, is when I was going to tell you. <laughs> and so then we approached, we approached Professor Morrison. She's like, I guess I could see if I want to write a blurb for you. But for all I know, you ruined it since I last saw it. <laughs> did you like, say it's, that? Yeah, she did. I'm like, it's <laughs> better. Don't, no, it's way better than when you last saw it. Trust me. You know, and it was like two or three years later, you know. So, and so with my students too, like, you know. It's my job to sort of, both my undergraduates and my graduate students, you know, is to, is to help them become better thinkers mm-hmm. and, and better writers and to use the, the time we have to help them with that. I don't really counsel them on <laughs> ambition and the perils therein, um, you know, and it'd be kind of hopeless anyway. I mean, I have such phenomenal students and they're so, um, have so much more ambition than I ever did. And are already, you know, especially my graduate students far more accomplished than I would, could possibly have been at their age or stage in their careers. So, you know, (laughs) their ambition is going just fine for that. (laughs) You know, David Troyer's first novel, is being republished by Grey Wolf Press, and it is titled Little, and he was joining us today from Germany. 